0: Welcome to The Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia, and here is today's presenter, Pastor Lyle Southwell. Today I want to
1: talk about a prayer, I want to share with you a prayer, and this is the longest prayer in the Bible. And it was prayed by Jesus, and it's the longest prayer, public prayer we have of Jesus. And the interesting thing, when you read the longest public prayer of Jesus, it is not that long. In fact, when I read it through, it is considerably shorter than the prayers that Harold Standish used to pray. But it is full of tremendous significance, and one of the most significant things I find about this prayer, and if you want to turn your Bibles to John chapter 17, where we find it, one of the most significant things I find about this prayer is that as Jesus is praying for us, as Jesus is praying for his people, this prayer is based on the reality that he is about to go to the cross. Everything that Jesus asks for in this prayer, everything that Jesus says in this prayer, is of absolutely no meaning whatsoever at all, unless he goes through with the cross. This was a prayer that came with a price, and that price was the death of Jesus Christ. And so it puts it in a little bit of a different context, doesn't it? When you sort of think about it from that perspective, you know, what would it be like for Jesus to pray this prayer, knowing that this whole prayer was a waste of time, unless he went through with what he was about to go through with. And we know that Jesus was shrinking back from what he was about to to do on the cross. This was not something that he was looking forward to. This is something that... Three times he asked the Father to take it away from him because he felt that he could not bear it. He could not see through the other side of it. He could not understand you know, how he could be able to go through with this, how he could take the sins of the world on him. And yet, knowing all of this was about to take place, one of the last things that he does is pray this prayer that is so full of meaning to us today because of what Jesus did on Calvary. And so, just to give a little bit of background to this particular prayer, um, this whole story begins, actually, we're, we're reading here in John chapter 17, but the story begins in John chapter 13, where the disciples are all getting together for the Passover feast and are all arguing with each other about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, This is their number one topic of conversation as all of this is taking place. And then you know the story how that as they're having this argument, Jesus comes out and washes their feet and shows where true greatness is. That true greatness is found in serving others. And then you've got the story of the Last Supper and how that Jesus is sharing the Last Supper with his disciples. And right there amongst his disciples, the Bible says, Judas, the son of perdition, is sitting right there. And Jesus has made his last appeal to Judas. Jesus has washed Judas' feet. And Judas then simply gets up and walks out. And goes and betrays Jesus Christ. So, these are rather solemn events that are taking place as this whole story progresses. Then you've got the whole story at uh, at the end of that. How uh, you know Peter's like, oh, you know, I'll go with you wherever, wherever you go. And, and of course, Jesus, there. Well, you know, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times because he understood and he knew who Peter was. And uh, and all of this is about to take place. Jesus then moves into a discussion about the Holy Spirit, he introduces to his disciples the subject of the Holy Spirit. And having talked about the fact that he is leaving, that he's going somewhere where they can't come, having shared the Last Supper with them, and having brought all of this to a close, he then leads them in prayer, and we have this prayer recorded for us here through the inspiration of the Apostle John. The Bible says in John chapter 17, And verse 1, these words spoke Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. It is interesting when we read this particular passage, how the prayer begins. Jesus begins by asking for glory. Verse 2, as you have given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me with your, own, uh, with your own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And we might find that's a little bit strange in a, in a kind of a way. Why is it that Jesus here... Is seemingly preoccupied with glory, as he launches into this last prayer that he's sharing with his disciples. Why is he, he he calling out to God and asking God, the Father, glorify me with Your glory? Is this the kind of way that we would start a prayer? You know, if uh, so, young at the at the beginning of our service here, I stood up and. And prayed that, you know, God would glorify her. We might have thought that was a little bit strange. We might think, well, well, why would somebody be trying to draw attention to themselves? And yet Jesus here, he asks that the Father will glorify him. Well, there's a number of contrasts that we need to take into consideration before we even begin to unpack what it is that Jesus is actually asking here. You see, Jesus in the context of this story has just demonstrated where true glory is. Isn't that so? What is it that Jesus has just done? As the ruler and the creator of the universe, as, 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 as the king over everything that he exists, he has just washed the feet of the disciples, he has done the work that the most lowly person on earth, the bottom of the rung, this is the work that they are given to do, and Jesus has done it himself. And so, immediately, we know that when Jesus says, Look, Father, I want you to glorify me, it has something very, very different to do is a very different kind of glory than the glory that Lucifer wanted in Isaiah chapter 14, where Lucifer says, you know, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit on the on the on the mount, on the sides of the north on the on the mount of the congregation, on the throne of God, I will do this, I will do that, I will do all the, all the rest. Satan wants glory for himself. For his own selfish purposes, Jesus wants glory so he can use it to serve others. You see the contrast between the two? And the context of the story gives it to us in that Jesus has just finished washing his disciples' feet. Let's dig into this a little bit further. Let's go back to Exodus. And there's something I wanted to pull out here. Ah, verse 6. Before we go to Exodus, verse 6 of John 17. Yeah, sorry. I was getting a little bit ahead of myself there. We need to move on to verse 6. So Jesus is asking for this glory. And in verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name unto the men which you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Why don't you notice here that Jesus links a number of things together. He talks about glory. He talks about his Father's glory. He asks for glory for himself. And then he states that he has manifested his name. He has made it plain. He has shown them his name. We have just sung about the beautiful name of Jesus as we have been going through our song service. We've sung a number of songs about the name of Jesus. And sometimes I wonder, you know, when a, when a uh, seeker who steps into a church for the very first time and they hear us sing those songs, do they scratch their heads and go, okay, why are why we singing about his name? You know, shouldn't we be singing about Jesus? Why would we sing about the name of Jesus? And sometimes it's worth our while to stop and think about what seekers would think. But we need to dig into this. And we need to ask ourselves the question is, the question, why is it that Jesus wants to be glorified? What is this glory? What is this name all about? Which takes us back to Exodus. And I know that many of you are familiar with what I'm going to be sharing with you. But it's good for us to go over it again so we can establish it in our minds from the Bible. Exodus chapter 33, here we have the story where Moses has gone up into the top of Mount Sinai, and as Moses is in the top of Mount Sinai, he is there to meet with God and receive the Ten Commandments. And while Moses is there, there is something that Moses wants, there is something that he desires, and that is to be able to see the glory of God. And we go down to verse 18, the Bible says, and he, Moses said, I beseech you, or I'm pleading with you. Show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see my face and live. See, here we find a fascinating experience where Moses is up in the mountain with God, and Moses wants to see the glory of God. He says, show me your glory. And God does this. God God answers Moses this way. He says, I will proclaim my name before you. So clearly we have a link here between the glory of God and the name of God. Isn't that so? There is something connecting these two things together. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I will proclaim my name. Jesus says, I have shown them your glory, I have shown them your name. And then God, having said this here in in Exodus chapter 33, he says, says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim the name of the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy to whom I will show mercy. So God starts to describe some things about himself. What is God describing about himself in this passage here? His goodness, his mercy, his character, isn't that so? And so what we find is that God's name and God's glory are connected to God's character. And so when Jesus says give me your glory so I can share your glory with those around me, Jesus is saying, give me your character so I can share your character. When Jesus says, I have shown your name to those around me, Jesus is saying, I have shown them your character. How did Jesus do that? Jesus has just done that in a very, very practical way by washing the feet of his disciples. That's the glory of God. That is selfless glory. The total giving of himself. Jesus had some hard things to say at times to some of the people at that time. And sometimes when you read Jesus and he stands up and he, and he, and he calls somebody a polished white grave, a sepulcher, you know, that's a pretty rough thing. You say, wow, you know, if Lyle stood up in, uh, in church, you know, if I stood up here this morning and, and said, you know what, Maitland, all of you guys, you're a whole bunch of. Uh, of graves you might get a little bit offended mightn't you why is it that Jesus could do that Jesus could do that because he had emptied himself of self he had humbled himself the Bible says completely and totally and this was not coming from himself if I was to say it there would no doubt be a little bit of self coming in you know maybe I've got a bit frustrated with Maitland and I go and call them a bunch of graves and that's just self coming through isn't it but when Jesus did it, there was no self whatsoever at all. This was God's character. This was God's glory that he was sharing. And this is why he was able to wash the disciples' feet. If we go back to John chapter 17, we need to continue with this prayer that Jesus prayed that he gave his life to see the fulfillment of this prayer. It's always nice when somebody prays for you, isn't it? You know, somebody comes up and they're like, Oh, I've been praying for you. I don't know about you, but when somebody comes and tells me I've been praying for you, it's just often it feels like if you're carrying a burden, it's just that little bit lighter, isn't it? You know, it's just, it just is. And it's very special. But isn't it even more special that Jesus prays for you? When Jesus prayed this prayer, he wasn't just praying it for his disciples as we We'll read in just a moment. He was praying this prayer for us and then sealing it with his blood. That's a special prayer for us. The Bible goes on in verse 7. Now they have known that all things, whatever you have given me, are of you. For I have given unto them the words which you gave me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came out from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world. Okay, so notice this prayer is not a prayer for the world. It's not that Jesus doesn't, but this time he's specifically praying for his disciples. But for those which you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I've come to you, Holy Father, keep through your own name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. And so Jesus prays for us. Jesus knows our circumstances. He knows exactly where we are. He knows that we live in a world of sin and evil and pain and suffering and temptation. He knows that we're not going to be taken out of this straight away, that this is where we're going to live, that we are a part of the great controversy. And so Jesus focuses his prayer. This particular prayer is focused on us who believe in Jesus Christ. As we look through this particular portion of Jesus' prayer, the significant part, the significant aspect that jumps out to us, is that Jesus is praying for those that know him. And as he prays for those that know him, the application for us is very simple. Christianity is all about knowing Jesus, isn't that so? That's what it's all based on. A little few verses back, previous to this, as part of this same evening together that Jesus has spent with his disciples, Jesus said, look, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me, he that lives in me, brings forth much fruit. And then he goes on as he prays for his disciples. The key part that identifies his disciples is his disciples are those that know him. How did they know Jesus? How did the disciples know Jesus? And, And therefore, as a result, how was it that they knew God the Father? These disciples knew Jesus because they had been with Jesus every day for the last three and a half years they had spent every day with Jesus they had walked with Jesus, they had talked with Jesus they had been there with Jesus they believed in Jesus because of their close association with Jesus and so if we are going to be in the same position as the disciples today how is it that we can accomplish the same thing can we walk with Jesus can we talk with Jesus can we spend our time with Jesus every day can we do that Yes, we can. Maybe not in the same way that they did, but we can do it in exactly exactly as they did it. And that's what God calls us to. Christianity is a relationship. It is a connection with Jesus Christ. And that connection is only ever real if we stay connected and we maintain our focus on Jesus Christ and knowing him and abiding in him. The word abide, to live with, to stay with, It's interesting if you go back to Matthew chapter 7, you find the contrast over there, Matthew chapter 7. Because it is possible for us to spend time talking about Jesus, doing things in relationship to Jesus, making a lot of noise about Jesus and not even know Jesus. In John chapter 7, the Bible says, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But who? Who's going to heaven? He that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name cast out devils, and in your name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Notice the attitude here that Jesus has to this particular group of people. He comes to this group of people and he says, I never what? What's the key? I never knew you. We were never friends. We never, we never, you never got to know me. There was never a relationship here. The key to this whole connection, the key to this whole experience, the reason why there are those who do the will of the Father is not because they talk a lot about Jesus. It's not because they have, they're, they're, they're constantly doing things in relationship to Jesus. It's not even because of the, the presence of the supernatural, it's because they know Jesus. That's what it all boils down to, is knowing Jesus. And that only takes place as a result of spending time with Jesus. The only way the disciples knew Jesus was because they were with him all day, every day, and God calls us to do the same. And from here, the prayer moves on and begins to talk about another aspect. If we go back to John chapter 17, John chapter 17, the prayer moves on and shares with us the result of knowing Jesus like this. Uh, where did we get up to? Down in verse John chapter 17. Yeah, 11 and 12 right there. It says, And and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep keep through your own name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Notice what the Bible, Jesus introduces in his prayer, the concept of oneness right here. And this becomes a theme right the way through the prayer. What is it? What kind of a relationship do we have with Jesus as we abide in Jesus, as we build our relationship with Jesus? It is a relationship of oneness. He says there that they may be one, that we may be one, as we, Jesus says, the Father and me, as we are one. God calls us to be one with Jesus as Jesus is one with the Father. And you'll find this theme is repeated over and over again through this particular prayer, and we're going to read more of it. But before we do, let's stop and think about the kind of unity that Jesus is talking about here. What does it mean to be one? How is it that we are able to be one with Jesus Christ? Can we physically blend and have physically the same body as Jesus Christ? Of course not. Jesus is in heaven. Jesus is in a glorified body. We are here on this earth. We have a sinful, wicked human body. There is a big contrast between the two. So how do we become one with Jesus Christ? And what does being one mean? If we go back to the book of Genesis, we find the answer to it. And you will remember in Genesis... Go right back to the beginning of the Bible. The Bible begins by talking about this oneness. In the very first chapter, in the very first story in the Bible, we can look at examples like verse 26, where the Bible says, And God said, Let us make man in our image. And we notice here that God describes himself in the plural form. Let us, plural, make man in our image. Well, why does God describe himself in the plural? Because God is three persons. Three persons making up the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when we read this particular passage here, let us make, God, let, let us make, make man in our image. And yet we read through the Bible that there is just one God. God is one God. There is no other God. God is singular. We are monotheists, not polytheists. So how do we, how do we deal with that? The Bible says, "Let us. Okay, who is us? We study our Bible and we find Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We, we, we go back right there in verse 1. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Verse 2, the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. Colossians chapter 1, we find that by Him, Jesus Christ, everything was made that was made. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three members of the Godhead, present there at one time at the creation of our world, and yet the Bible says we serve one God. How are we able to understand that plural three can become one? You see, most people, if they looked at it just from that perspective, they'd say, okay, I get Christianity, I understand it, Christianity is a polytheistic religion It has three gods, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Christians will turn around and say, no, 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 we're not polytheists, we are, we are monotheists, we only serve one God, and a person who's looking in from the outside might scratch their head and go, how does that even work? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but only one God. We get a little bit of a clue right here. In verse 26, when the Bible says, God said, let us make man in our image. What does it mean that we are made in the image of God? Well, it means that obviously there are some attributes of God that he has passed to us, isn't that so? As human beings, there are some things that God has that he has passed to us and we don't know what all of they are. But we do know this, that God's ability, if you want to call it that, for plural to be singular, for three members of the Godhead to be one God. That ability to be one, to experience oneness with more than one being is an attribute of God, is an attribute of divinity. We are made in the image of God and God has given us that same attribute. We find it if we turn over the page, illustrated right here in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, where the Bible says this, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave, stick to his wife, and those two shall be how many? One. One. Now I see lots of families here, I see lots of husbands and wives. And they're sitting beside each other. They're two. Very, very clearly. Here's a husband and wife right here. They're two, right? Okay? Michael and Susanna, right? Or Julian Kelvin. Two. And yet the Bible says that they shall be one. So what does that mean? You see, in a marriage relationship, if you take sin out of the equation because you live in a world of sin... A husband and a wife, as they come together, are be so to be so perfectly united that they think as one, they act as one, they live as one, their beliefs the same, their, their 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 concept, they just their their two lives blend together until they become one. And the marriage should be, and so often isn't, but it should be, it was designed by God to be a foretaste of heaven. A little taste of us, for us. And you know what it's like when you've been married for a while and sometimes you can look at your spouse and you just know exactly what they're thinking. You know? Remember we were driving in the car one time and we have been just sitting there silent, you know, just driving down the road, road trip. Shell's sitting there, I'm sitting here. No one's saying anything. And sometimes as couples, you know, you just do that. And Shell goes, oh, you know that photo? And before she said another word, I piped down in and described the photo. She This had nothing to do with anything we'd ever said. It's just wonderful when husbands and wives, it's just a, a, a really cool thing, when you can really start to experience that oneness that God designed. Now, we live in a world of sin, and that doesn't always happen. And even in the most perfect marriage, that doesn't always happen. But... If you take sin out of the equation, this was how God designed human beings to be. And it gives us a picture of the oneness of God in heaven. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit so perfectly united that they are counted in the Bible as one God. They act the same. They think the same. Everything that they do is perfectly united. And this when we read it in the context of Jesus' prayer for us that he's sealed with his own blood, helps us to understand the kind of unity that we can have with Jesus Christ, perfectly united with him. This is not uniformity. Sometimes I find Christians who feel that unless we have uniformity, we are never going to be united together we never be going to become one together and Jesus goes on and he talks here about unity in John chapter seventeen if we go back over there very quickly and we're going to have to skip through this fairly quickly because uh, we're spending a fair bit of time on it verse seventeen sanctify them through your through your truth your word is truth if you have sent me into the world, even so I send them into the world and for their sakes I sanctify myself uh, verse twenty one they they all uh, Verse 20, sorry. Neither pray I for these alone. Here it comes. But for them also which shall believe on me through their words. So who's Jesus praying for in this passage? He's praying for us. Right here now, this morning. But here it comes. That they all may be one. What's he praying for for us here at Maitland? That we'll be one. United together. What kind of unity? They may be one. As you, Father, are in me. And I am you that they may be one in us. God calls us and offers us the experience of being one with him. What an incredible privilege. And when we think about uniformity, sometimes we, uh, we, we, we look at something like this and like, okay, we've got to be united together. So that means that we all need to think alike, we all need to look alike, we all need to dress alike, we all need to act alike. Uh, We all need to follow the same creed, we all need to listen to the same music, enjoy the same art, have the same hairstyle, etc., etc., etc. Is that what the Bible is teaching? No, not at all. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you find that 1 Corinthians chapter 12 describes the church, the body of Christ, as being like a body with many members. And if we look at our body, our body has many members. You know, we have ha- hands, we have feet, we have arms, we have toes, we have legs, we have all kinds of different members of our body, and they all are very different from each other, aren't they? And they all do something totally different from each other, but when they all work together to one aim, then the body becomes a success. If one part of the body starts to fight against another part of the body, you're not going to get very far, are you? So the Bible is not talking about uniformity here. It's talking about unity that comes through being united with Jesus Christ. And we wonder, well, how is that possible? And probably the greatest example of it is what we have in Acts chapter 1 and 2 where Jesus gave the Great Commission to send his disciples out to the whole world and and to give the gospel message to the whole world. And there's just 120 of them. And they begin to pray together in the upper room. And as they pray together and as they realize the bigness of the work that God has called them to... The differences that they have been dividing them and the discussion they'd been having just a few days previously, really, about who would be greatest in the kingdom suddenly wanes into insignificance. Sometimes we have discussions in our church and we have, you know, disagreements over this, and it's amazing how small things can become big issues. You ever notice that at times? how a small thing can become a really big issue and people will stop going to church at times over a really small thing. We lose track of the big picture of what God has called us to and how small these things really are because we lose our connection with Jesus Christ. God calls us to be united with Jesus Christ and as we are united with Jesus Christ, then we will be drawn to him. Moving down to the end of the chapter here, in the last couple of verses, and we've moved over the prayer of Jesus very quickly, there's a whole bunch of really amazing things here that we could look at, but we do need to finish up. In verse 25, Jesus finishes off his prayer. And he says, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you have sent me. And I have declared unto them your name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus finishes his prayer by praying that the love that the Father has and that the love that he has is the love that will be our experience. And then Jesus goes out and seals that prayer for us to experience the love of Jesus with his own blood. As I finish up, I'd like to share with you a bit of a story that comes from a missionary experience in Africa that illustrates just how much Jesus cares for each one of us and how seriously, when he prayed for us so long ago, he took that prayer. The doctor is writing, he says, One night I'd worked hard to help a mother in the labour ward, but in spite of all we we could do, she died leaving us with a tiny premature baby and a crying two-year-old daughter. We would have difficulty keeping the baby alive as we had no incubator and we had no electricity to run an incubator and we had no special feeding facilities. Although we lived on the equator, nights were often chilly with treacherous drafts. One student midwife went for the box we had for such babies in the cotton wool that the baby would be wrapped in. Another went to stoke up the fire and fill a hot water bottle. She came back shortly in distress to tell me that in filling the bottle, it had burst. Rubber perishes easily in tropical climates. And it is our last hot water bottle, she exclaimed. As in the West, it is no good crying over spilt milk, so in Central Africa, it might be considered no good crying over burst water bottles. They do not grow on trees, and there are no chemists down forest pathways. All right, I said, put the baby as near the fire as you can and sleep between the baby and the door to keep it free from drafts. Your job is to keep the baby warm. The following midday, as I did most days, I went to have prayers with any of the orphan children who chose to gather with me. I gave the youngsters various suggestions of things to pray about and told them about the tiny baby. I explained our problem about keeping the baby warm enough, mentioning the hot water bottle, and that the baby could so easily die if it got chills. I also told them, of the two-year-old sister crying because her mother had died. During prayer time, one 10-year-old girl, Ruth, prayed with the usual blunt consciousness of our African children, Please, God, send us a hot water bottle today. It'll be no good tomorrow, God, as the baby will be dead, so please send it this afternoon. While I gasped inwardly at the audacity of the prayer, she added, And while you're about it, would you please send a dolly for the little girl so, she will, so she'll know you really love her? As often with children's prayers, I was put on the spot. Why? I've been there many times myself. But why as why we as adults do we get ourselves put on the spot in, in a situation like this? Uh, where was I up to? Could I honestly say amen? I just did not believe that God could do this. Oh yes, I know he can do everything. The Bible says so. But there are limits, aren't there? The only way God could answer this particular prayer would be by sending me a parcel from the homeland. I had been in Africa for almost four years at that time and had never, ever received a parcel from home. Anyway, if anyone did send me a parcel, who would put a hot water bottle? Who would put in a hot water bottle? I live on the equator. Halfway through the afternoon while I was teaching in the nurse's training school, a message was sent that there was a car at my front door. By the time I reached home, the car had gone but there on the veranda was a large 22-pound parcel. So I sent for the orphanage children, and together we pulled off the string, carefully undoing each knot. We folded the paper, taking care not to tear it unduly. unduly, Excitement was mounting. Some 30 or 40 pairs of eyes were focused on the large cardboard box. From the top, I lifted out brightly knitted jerseys. Eyes sparkled as I gave them out. Then there were knitted bandages for the leprosy patients and the children looked a little bored. Then came a box of mixed raisins and sultanas that would make a batch of buns for the weekend. Then as I put my hand in again, I felt the, could it really be? I grasped it and pulled it out. Yes, a brand new rubber hot water bottle. I cried. I had not asked God to send it. I had not truly believed that he could. He could. Ruth was in the front row of the children. She rushed forward, crying out, If God sent the bottle bottle, he must have sent the dolly too. Rummaging down to the bottom of the box, she pulled out the small, beautifully dressed dolly. Her eyes shone. She had never doubted. Looking up at me, she asked, Can I go over with you and give this dolly to that little girl so that she'll know that Jesus really loves her? Of course, I replied. That parcel had been on the way for five months packed by my former Sunday school class, whose leader had heard and obeyed God's prompting, to send a hot water bottle even to the equator. And one of the girls had put in a dolly for an African child five months before in answer to the believing prayer of a 10-year-old to bring it that afternoon. You read a story like that, and we all know why Jesus died. Jesus died on Calvary so that he could save us from our sins. But that's not all. Jesus died on Calvary. He went to the cross so that he could answer the prayer of a 10-year-old African girl and send a dolly and a hot water bottle five months in advance to the other side of the world. That's why Jesus died. When Jesus prayed his prayer, he prayed for us as individuals, He cares for us. His prayer shows that he cares for us as individuals. And Jesus sealed that prayer with his blood a few hours later when he went to Calvary. We serve a wonderful God. We serve a God who prays for us and cares for us and doesn't just want to see us in heaven, but wants to provide for our needs right now. Father in heaven, Jesus, we thank you that you paid it all. You paid it all so that you could save us from this world of sin. But you paid it all so you could take care of our needs right now. That you care for us and that you prayed for us and you sealed that prayer with your blood. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456, or from outside of Australia on country code 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3 ABN Australia, all one word.org.au. Our postal address is 3 ABN Australia Inc., PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264, Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support.
0: Stay tuned. Coming up next, we have Carly Fletcher with Come Home.
2: You come after
3: Come home, dear child, I am searching for you, come home, dear child. Cha.
0: It's time for Balanced Living with Vicki Griffin.
4: Life after loss, growth out of grief. Loss, it's a part of life, the hardest part, and it starts early. Grief has many faces and strikes every age. It is impossible to make sense of many terrible losses, whether it's death, a disabling injury, The loss of property, pets, health, friends, or a job. Loss can make you feel like there's a bullseye on your back with no place to hide. One author wrote, God marks across some of our days. I will explain later. How do you face loss? To the person who believes that God will never let bad things happen to people who live right, Feelings of betrayal and bitterness can fester and finally destroy faith and trust in God's power. In this world, we are not always shielded from suffering. It's a part of our human experience. Sometimes we are grieved with the thought that we have brought suffering on ourselves or into the lives of others through unwise choices. But God promises His cleansing forgiveness, the comfort of His presence, and continual strength and guidance. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. God will not abandon you in your hour of need. Emerging from the valley. Healing from grief is not quick and easy, but it is possible. Trust that you can and will heal. Believe that the day will come when you will be able to remember your loss without overwhelming pain. It takes time because grief over loss usually involves a progression of emotions that ebb and flow. The course of grief is traced by numbness and shock, feelings of utter despair, anger, loss, and helplessness. Every griever walks through that valley, but beyond there is hope purpose, and a plan for your life. Stay strong through suffering. Physical as well as spiritual nurture is vital during times of stress. Accept help from others or ask for it when you need it, whether it's help cleaning, shopping, caring for the needs of the family, or your own need for company. Take time to get into the fresh air and exercise each day. Stock up on fresh fruits and vegetables, healthful whole grains and nuts. Avoid caffeine, alcohol, soda pop, and tobacco. Instead, stay hydrated and calm with water and soothing herb teas. Practice CPR. Grief counselor Larry Yagley in his book, Grief Recovery, outlines a plan for readjustment after loss. He calls it CPR. It's C. Communication. The environment of our society can make it difficult to talk about sad feelings. Someone in grief may need to talk, but feel as if they're imposing on others by discussing their loss. It's important to actively seek out people who care enough to listen, and that may mean connecting with people in helping professions, such as a pastor, counselor, physician, or support group. P is for participation. Participating in the regular activities of life is an important step toward healing. Gradually expanding your activities and social circle does not mean you have forgotten your old life, but it's a way of moving forward with a new life, a new normal that still has meaning. R is for relationship. Major crises like death, divorce, or illness can impair a person's ability to form or sustain relationships. Spending some time alone is healing, but prolonged isolation can hinder recovery. Actively reaching out to others to give and receive support is an important factor in recovery. It helps those who grieve to establish meaning and purpose in their lives and to establish it in a new context. Strength to Endure John Claypool lost his 10-year-old daughter in a two-year battle with a terminal illness. In the promise of Isaiah forty thirty 30-31, he found that strength came to him in a most unexpected form. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. He summarized his experience. 1. You shall mount up with wings as eagles. Here is exuberance and freedom. This type of strength does not fit the long nights of anxious care when tending to a sick child. Two, you shall run and not be weary. Here is strength for action to solve problems and perform tasks. But in some situations, there's nothing you can do. Three, you shall walk and not faint. <laughs> that may sound insignificant, Who wants to be slowed to a walk, creeping along inch by inch, just barely able to endure? But this is the only form of the promise that fits this situation. In the dark stretches of life, when you cannot soar and there's no place to run, to know of a help that will provide the strength that enables you to walk and not faint is good news indeed. There is an end to sorrow. There are seasons of life that may feel like one long winter, but the promise of summer is coming when God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Revelation 21, 4. In this life, the experience of grief can deepen our ability to participate in life. It can make us more grateful for what we have, more sensitive and trusting. It is often through the valley of suffering that the ministry of consolation to others is born in our hearts. Christ himself is afflicted in all our sorrows, and he promises to guide us through the dark valleys in life. His love opens a channel into the wounded heart that becomes a healing medicine to those who sorrow a medicine that those who have grieved can share with others.
0: You've been listening to Balanced Living, presented by Vicki Griffin. I hope you enjoy the short presentation on the history of the Reformation
5: from lineagejourney.com. The execution of Hassan Jerome had caused a national uproar back in Bohemia. He was believed to have been a faithful teacher, and as is often the case, now that he was dead, his writings attracted an even greater interest. The Hussite Wars commenced about four years after the death of Hassan Jerome in the year 1419. As Pope and Emperor united to crush the Hussite movement, the Lord raised up a deliverer. Zizka was one of the most able generals of his age and was the leader of the Bohemians. He had lost sight in one eye during a battle in 1410, and later in his life, he would lose sight in the other eye as well, but he would still lead his armies into battle after battle without losing. He is one of the few generals about whom it can be said never lost a battle in war. He was a military genius and is credited with inventing an early form of the tank. They were called war wagons, and they were wooden boxes that were reinforced with steel on wagon wheels, and he would send these into battle with people inside and load them with cannons and crossbows and pistols. Despite having mainly peasants as soldiers, With the use of clever war tactics and with providence on their side, the Hussite armies were able to repel the numerically larger and better trained papal armies. Zizhko would fight over 250 battles in his lifetime and would withstand two full papal crusades against him, but he was not to die on the battlefield. Instead, he would fall victim to the Black Plague. But before he would die, he gave his men some instructions, telling them he still wanted to go with them onto the battlefield. He told his men to make a drum out of his skin, which they did, and they took this drum made with Ziska's skin and would beat it as they went into battle. His place was filled by Procopius, who was a skillful and brave leader, and in some aspects a more able general. The enemies of the Bohemians, knowing that the blind warrior was now dead, thought they would now be able to win. The Pope launched another crusade against the Bohemians in 1427, where he was defeated. He then launched another crusade, where he was defeated again. In 1431, under a new pope, a fifth crusade was launched, but once again, the papal armies were soundly defeated by the Hussite forces. Realizing that they couldn't conquer by force, they resorted to diplomacy. A compromise was entered into that, while appearing to offer freedom of conscience, really betrayed them into the power of Rome. The Bohemians had specified four points as a condition of peace with Rome, and these were the free preaching of the Bible, the right of the whole church to both the bread and the wine in the communion, the use of the mother tongue in divine worship, the exclusion of the clergy from all secular offices and authority, and in cases of crime, the jurisdiction of the civil courts over clergy and laity alike. last the papal authorities agreed to accept the four Hussite articles, but that the right of explaining them, that is, of determining their precise import, should rest with the council, that is, with the emperor and the pope. On this basis, a treaty was entered into and Rome gained by dissimulation and fraud what she had failed to gain by conflict. For in placing her own interpretation upon the articles as upon the Bible, she could pervert their meaning to suit her own ends. Oftentimes when Satan is not able to defeat us through open confrontation, he tries the tactic of compromise. It's something he's done repeatedly throughout history and throughout the Bible. May we be careful wise and discerning and most of all resolute and that we stand for God through whatever tactic Satan uses against us, whether it's confrontation or whether it's compromise and that we may always stand for God.
0: To view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.